Greetings, everyone. Happy New Year. This is producer Jake. Just a quick note on today's episode. So our HAL 9000 computer encountered a fatal error during the recording of this conversation. And despite our best efforts, we unfortunately lost the first several minutes of guest Jonathan Kirshner's audio. So just rest assured knowing that the conversation was great. We do have Danny's introduction to Dr. Kirshner. So you'll hear that and then it'll pick up about 15 minutes into the conversation. So our apologies, and enjoy the conversation. Thanks. That's kind of conversation between soul. That's conversation between soul and the Hello, Prestige Heads, and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner, here as always with my friend and comrade, Derek Davison. And we are excited to welcome to the podcast my old friend, Jonathan Kirshner. Jonathan is a professor of political science and international studies at Boston College. Uh, and he's also the author of a new book, uh, An Unwritten Future, Realism and Uncertainty in World Politics. And it's a great book. It's by Princeton. So you know it's good. So go out and get it. Jonathan, Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here and to see you again. So, Jonathan, could you maybe explain anarchy for people who don't know what that is? Sure. Anarchy simply means the absence of an, a legitimate authority to adjudicate disputes. Uh, and what it means is that states or countries are left to their own devices that ultimately, even though war may not imminently happen, uh, war can happen and conquest can happen, and there is no authority that will stop the worst from happening to you. And so ultimately, you need to be attentive to the absence of that leadership or, or kind of sovereign uh, in order to navigate your way in world politics. So it does, it does the presence of anarchy does impose some priorities uh, on the way that states behave, because they must have that at the very least in the back of their minds. I am the only one, ultimately, who will assure my own security, and therefore I need to temper my behaviors accordingly. So structural realists basically argue that states in anarchy bump up against one another. And why don't we talk about the other bad guy, which is hyper-rationalism? So hyper-rationalism, which is also extraordinarily influential in, in the study of world politics today, draws on... Uh, economic theory called the theory of rational expectations, that all actors understand exactly how the world works. They process information efficiently, and they all know, in a probabilistic sense, what's going to happen next. And so if there's going to be a confrontation between states from a hyper-rationalist perspective like this, it's almost a puzzle as to why wars would ever occur. Since everybody knows what's going to happen, and wars are costly, with both blood and treasure, we can save some of that blood and treasure and just skip ahead to the outcome of the war, and we're all better off. The economists would say it's a Pareto superior outcome to actually skip the war, have the negotiation, and move on. Uh, now, I disagree vehemently with both of those approaches. Um, and again, the, the, the second one first, rational, ex rational expectations theory, just turns out to be wrong. Um, we do not, it goes back to this point about do we all share an underlying understanding of how the political world works? And it doesn't. We all walk around with different models in our head of how the world works, even within 
one country sitting around a table, uh, elites might disagree vehemently about what the consequence of this or that might be. And that's even within one country. But for rational expectations to work, and therefore for the bargaining model, for the hyper-rationalist model, for the rationalist explanations of war model to work in international relations, everybody must share the same model. If there are multiple models, it cannot work. And as it turns out, there are multiple models. The problem with structural realism is that it draws on a microeconomic analogy really of perfect competition. The system imposes pressures on actors and they must respond to them or be selected out. But the international pol political world is not really a world of perfect competition. It's much closer to oligopolistic competition. Great powers are not tiny actors. They can actually affect the market themselves. And so their behaviors matter. Certainly, they receive systemic pressures, but their behaviors also, and this is the wild part, shape the nature of the international system itself. Again, that is impermissible to structural realism, but if you allow for that, and, and again, I think it's important that you do because it is an oligopolistic political world out there, then what states want matters. And states may not all want the same things. They may actually not be like units. I give an example of this that I think really captures this well, if I say so myself. It's something I call the ketchup analogy. Um, and you can imagine the supply and demand for ketchup. And we all understand how this works very well from the economist Alfred Marshall and the Marshallian supply and demand curves. You've seen them all if you take an intro to economics. The supply curve goes up, the demand curve goes down. And at the equilibrium, they meet, and we know what the equilibrium price is, and we know what the equilibrium demand is. Then there's a shock, say a tariff, could be a policy shock, that raises the price of ketchup. Well, we know what's going to happen. There, there's going to be a reduction in the demand for ketchup. But here's the thing. Remember that demand curve. Some actors will still buy lots of ketchup because they love ketchup. And other actors, now that the price is a little higher, will say, Ah, I don't really care much for ketchup. I can use mustard instead. And so they consume less ketchup. But unless we know the specific preferences of the actor, we won't know if they're the guy who will keep buying ketchup at the higher price or the woman who will stop buying ketchup when the price reaches that level. To understand how actors in world politics will respond to shocks, including policy shocks, we need to understand their idiosyncratic specific tastes and preferences. You talked about statistical analysis earlier on. So much of statistical analysis is about deriving the typical behavior of the average player in a normal moment, like drawing a ball from a vast urn of subjects. But in international politics, we almost always want to know the reaction of a specific player in a distinct moment. And so that knowing that statistical model won't really be very helpful in that particular setting. Exactly. This is why you need history. It's funny. It's like the agent structure problem. The, the answer is both. <laughs> they both matter. Yeah. They both inform each other. So this leads into why you think classical realism is so important. So what does classical realism do and in what ways that these two approaches, structural slash neorealism and hyper-rationalism, don't allow you to do? I think the two things it does with regard to the former is that it allows you to better understand how states behave by introducing crucial 
variables that are forbidden by structural realism. So I do want to emphasize that classical realism and classical realists take the balance of power very seriously. It is indeed anarchy out there. Um, you can indeed be invaded and conquered, even if it's not the most likely thing that's going to happen. So it's not that classical realism is dismissive of the significance of the balance of power out there. Rather, it is that relying solely on the distribution of power will be inherently and irretrievably indeterminate. It just does not give us enough information to tell us what's going on. So we need to respect and understand the balance of power, and it will be meaningful in shaping the international environment. But in order to understand what states are going to do, again, you have to understand what they want. So classical realism, I think, brings out power and purpose. And where does purpose come from? Purpose comes from a lot of different places, but the two most important places it probably comes from are history, uh, as we've discussed, and what states think they've learned from history, which may not be the right thing, but nevertheless it's what they think they've learned from history, and ideas or ideology. So this is really interesting to me because um, what is a state? Who comprises the states? And as a historian, I have an answer to that. You go to X, Y, you actually focus on the decision structures of the state, and you say, in this moment, the State Department's more influential because Henry Kissinger's there. When he's not there, it's less influential, or, or what have you. But political scientists don't do that sort of deep archival work. So how are you determining what a state is and where the locus of decision-making power actually is? This was always my problem, why historian and not an IR person, because I think you to understand what's happening, you need that sort of micro-level power relationship analysis. I think that's fair, and I do think international relations scholars and even classical realists tend to focus on two fictions. Right? One is that leaders have a tremendous amount of autonomy to do what they want, leaders and perhaps elites more generally, and the other is this concept of the national interest, uh, which is that no matter who's running a country, a country will nevertheless have interests that we can understand as reflecting what's best for the country in aggregate. And I try and unpack this because it's problematic for international relations theory and even for classical realism. In a chapter, I, I, I write on the, the limits of realism and classical realism. But we do tend to imagine states as having interests in the system. And we also do imagine that leaders and elites are able to direct uh, foreign policies of states with some discretion. And of course, in the real world, it gets much, much messier than that. But I do think that those are the simplifying assumptions that to some extent, classical realism still shares even with uh, those approaches to world politics that it tends to disagree with. I'm I'm just curious. I want to return to the main thrust in a second, but I, I'm. Just, what do you make of the fact that you know, like Mersheimer and Walt have to write the Israel lobby? I mean, that's just it's about domestic politics. It's like why aren't states acting like the theory should? This is why. Uh, this is so. So, like, what do you? It seems like so many structural realists appreciate that it doesn't actually explain very much. I, I'm just curious what you think of that. Well, that's a weird book. Yeah, for the reasons you've said. Uh, and I think that this is a larger problem for Amir Sharma than it is for Walt, whose, I think, work is generally more nuanced uh, than, than Mir Sharma's work. 
But Mearsheimer's principal theory, the theory of offensive realism, is a structural realist theory. And on top of that, it's a deterministic theory, which, of course, as an uncertainty guy, as a follower of Keynes, blows my mind because we don't think there's determinism in the social world. And so to articulate this deterministic theory of structural realism, and then to write a book that says, oh, and by the way, U.S. foreign policy is shaped by some of these domestic actors, it's, my instinct is to say it's weird, but let's just call it incongruous. In fact, there is a lot of incongruity uh, in Mearsheimer's work. It's easy to poke at Mearsheimer right now because I think he is, for obvious reasons, that we don't need to get into, but there his theory is a structural realist theory that's deterministic. So I find it odd that he often postures himself as a critic of various states' foreign policy because it's all inevitable. States should just be doing what the theory says they're doing, and many of the states that Mearsheimer criticizes are doing what his theory says they should be doing, and it's a deterministic theory, and then he goes about and criticizes them for behaving that way. It, it, is, it is a little incongruous. Well, I imagine he would say uh, there's a difference between the scientist and the political actor in the world. Uh, when a scientist, I'm searching for parsimonious theories a la Waltz, and then when I act in the social world, I'm someone acting in history. Why does there have to be an identity between those two um, identifications? So that doesn't have to be. And in fact, I would celebrate that difference. Uh, our, our behavior as a dispassionate analyst of world politics and our own disposition as individuals who have attitudes about what the best way to approach world politics is. Those are two different things. One of my teachers, Bob Gilpin, a legendary realist, emphasized this all the time, that his descriptive theory did not reflect his own attitudes about how the world should work. But Mearsheimer, and I don't want to spend all of our time on Mearsheimer, but Mearsheimer is a bit of an outlier here in that he combines them. He says that his theory is both descriptive and normative. He says states will behave as the theory of offensive realism says it will behave. They will, inevitably. And then he adds, and by the way, they should, because it's the best way to survive in a dangerous world. So, he smushes together positive and normative analysis, and the arrows both point in exactly the same direction. This is how states will behave, and I think this is exactly how states should behave. And again, since it's a deterministic theory, and since he endorses it, it's puzzling to me when occasionally he criticizes countries for acting in ways that sound to be like they're just following along with the theory's prescriptions. Yeah, it's very of its of its moment, sort of mid-century theory building. But that's why that's why it's so interesting to me, at least from a from sort of an arm length view, an arm's length view, how so many political scientists seem to have just gone all in on the science when it's pretty clear it doesn't work. It's not like 1910 anymore when this was an open question. Maybe if you built a powerful enough computer, you could do it. I think it's like pretty pretty obvious it doesn't really serve as a predictive model and it i don't is is this just Kuhnian normal science happening here like what's going on and then i want to ask about thucydides but i'm just sure. trying to catch you here <laughs> i'm not i'm not sure we can swoop these guys up all in one net uh because ken waltz uh is a structural realist he's the most important structural realist his book theory of international politics is the kind of rosetta stone of structural realism and Although I think that book is deeply flawed, 
uh, it doesn't share those same vices we described uh, with the theory of offensive realism. Uh, Waltz is agnostic uh, as to what's likely to happen in the world. What he says is, if states don't behave this way, there's a good chance they'll be selected out of the system. But actually, so he's not saying, I know what states are going to do. I'm not really engaging in prediction. The only prediction I'm engaging in is if states fail to heed these systemic pressures, they will run into trouble. And there's not a lot of normative talk in his approach either. Now, again, I think his theory is wrong and misguided, fundamentally so. But I don't want to just smush all these folks together because he's more cautious about what he says he's saying in his book. In fact, he's too cautious for me. He's cautious to a fault. His supporters often say, well, Walt isn't telling us lots of little things. Walt is telling us a few really big and important things. And my response is always, okay, so what are those few and really important things he's telling us? And I'm not sure that they're there. Uh, So I'm deeply skeptical about that. And again, the analogy the entire uh, model is built on of perfect competition in microeconomic theory, I think is misapplied to the study of world politics. Jonathan, I, I I don't know if you read it, but I wrote a paper with Nicolai Guillaume in International Security about this very issue. And I, I mean, I just think Waltz was very shaped by um, uh, international security, not international theory. I, I think Waltz was very shaped by systems thinking of the 1950s. So you have a moment where political science is incredibly late to the party. I mean, and basically economics and other forms of social approach, cybernetics, whatever, this is a phenomenon of the 1960s. I think Waltz basically... My argument, at least, is that Waltz embraces systems theory because it's a way to provide an ideological justification for American empire while answering the classical realist critique of basically you need a, an authoritative decision maker that you can't trust the public. So Waltz basically evacuates human beings from his theory. He goes, you actually don't need human beings. America is just as good as the Soviet Union. Go forth and prosper. You don't need to focus. So I think there's an ideological uh, component to a lot of this social theorizing as well, is that Waltz wants to defend liberalism against the Germanic, you know, real politish tradition, real politish tradition. You would know better about those aspects than I, but I don't feel comfortable labeling Waltz an imperialist uh, is the one thing I would add. I mean, he was, along with realists of every stripe, uh, uh, early and loud opponents of the Vietnam War, for example, um, on this kind of narrow there is no imposing national interest pressure to bring America to Vietnam. And, and, and they, the group as a whole did a very good job observing uh, what a mistake uh, that was. Uh, but I think your other observations about the way in Waltz was constructing his theory and its influences certainly make sense to me. Personally, of course, I'm a much bigger fan of his classic 1959 book, Man, the State in War, which operates uh, at all levels of analysis, but, but he put away such things in the decades that followed. Well, think about foreign policy and democratic politics, the overlooked second book. That's just yeah. a justification for democracies can make good policy. Basically, that's a 9,000-page justification for that. And so the next book is this small thing where he basically systemizes, I think, that ideological claim, which is that democracy – because the big fear of the 30s and 40s is that totalitarian, quote-unquote, states are just more efficient, so they're going to win. Waltz's ideological project is to prove that that's not the case, that you don't need that. A, a, a sort of romantic vision there. That may be. I mean, my analytical instincts are to focus more on the theory than the theorist, and in focusing more on the theory, 
My complaints are with the theory found in theory of international politics in 79, which is why my focus is much more on trying to unpack where I think that theory has gone wrong. And I think it's fair to say that I haven't thought intensely about what biases in the author might have led them to such an approach. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess, and then we'll move to Thucydides, but that's probably my big, classical realism is an argument for American empire, and particularly for an anti-democratic foreign policy. That is, I think, its biggest its biggest drawbacks. But why don't we go to the actual argument, which is Thucydides. Are we in a Thucydides trap? Maybe you could talk about your chapter on Thucydides and, and, and sort of talk about this historian as basically this is where the tradition is constructed to have started, right? It doesn't start earlier. It doesn't start later. It starts with Athens, Thucydides, which is such a Germanic 19th century way to, you know, approach uh, canon construction. I love it. Sure. Before I do, I do want to emphasize that my purpose was not to genuflect before the masters. Uh, although I do find Thucydides' book a work of staggering genius, and I do see a lot of great work in many of the realists that I revere. Uh, two of them in particular would be Morgenthau and Raymond Aron. But these are just people uh, who make mistakes, who have biases, and who would not want us uh, to worship them. So the project in the book is to try and simply observe and distill commonalities of thought across these disparate thinkers and say, hey, you know what? If you look at all these things, you can see some common themes that we can associate with something called classical realism. So it's not a celebration or a deification of these thinkers. Um, as for Thucydides, as I said, it's a, a remarkable book, and it has been greatly misused by most international relations theorists who we can think of them as revolving door of Thucydidians, right? They, they enter with uh, the, the, the strong do what they will and the weak suffer as they must, and then they exit with uh, the rising power of, our, of Athens uh, invoked fear in Sparta, and that's what caused the Peloponnesian War. But this is, uh, you know, in, in most editions, a 400-page book uh, that covers in great detail a 27-year war, and the discussions across it are rich uh, with lessons for students of politics, especially international politics, even though there was no discipline of international relations when Thucydides was writing. And these weren't even really nations, right? These were city-states uh, fighting amongst themselves. But nevertheless, Thucydides' savvy insights into these types of relations, I find very enduring, and I find very informative of what we have come to call classical realism. Uh, but again, he's been greatly misunderstood uh, in that we talk about, or, or the phrase bandied about is a Thucydides trap uh, between the U.S. and China, for example. Well, that's interesting because Thucydides wasn't an opponent of the original start uh, of the Peloponnesian War. Uh, if you take the conventional view, as I do, that he was uh, what we would call today a fanboy of Pericles. Well, Pericles was kind of a warmonger who favored the war and gave rousing speeches insisting on it. And the only problem for Thucydides is that Pericles dies three years into the war and his sage advice is no longer followed. And down the road, Athens embarks on this massive adventure after the first part of the war has gone pretty well for them to try and conquer Sicily. Uh, and, and if there is a Thucydides trap, as I insist in the book, 
It is the trap of hubris. The great powers uh, become drunk on their own capabilities and take on foolish overseas adventures that undermine them because of the bad choices they've made. So the, there may be a Thucydides trap, but it's not about the changing balance of power causing the war between Athens and Sparta. It's that Athens came to ruin because of its hubris. And I want to add that a lot of people who teach the Melian dialogue fail to observe that the dialogue takes place in the book immediately before the Sicilian campaign. And Thucydides was definitely pairing those events in a very important way because Melos was in irrelevant backwater. Why tell the story of Melos? Because it reflected what had become of Athens 17 years into war. And it had changed the nature of, you know, what, what Thucydides loved, which was the noble Athenian vision that he had in his imagined mind. And there, so there are so many lessons in this book. It's rich with lessons about politics and behavior. And yes, with warnings about traps, but not the ones that were normally bandied about on bumper stickers in the contemporary literature. Uh, and I just want to add, you know, as a historian of social science, this is where I think focusing on the theorists in addition to the theory could help you understand why someone in the mid-20th century would have focused more on the balance of power between Athens and Sparta in the wake of Nazism and the emergent Cold War, and why in the 21st century we could focus more on imperial hubris. And in some sense, that's what make, uh, makes a book like Thucydides or Dostoevsky or really any of these great, great masterworks, something you could look into and, and gather a lot of different things. So it's, it's, it's interesting to focus, I think, both on the sort of internal theoretical perspective, but also the external perspective, which I think as human beings moving through the world indefinitely and necessarily um, always will shape uh, how theory is constructed. I think that's right. But if I could offer some very modest advice, not to you, but to listeners, if you want to understand what Thucydides had to say, maybe just read the whole book. Uh, and not, Always good know, advice. <laughs> not four sentences of it selected from disparate, you know, plucked out of different parts of the book and plopped down into a very different context. Uh, I'm an American. I don't need to read things to criticize them. Thank you very much. Uh, <laughs> that's that's not how it works. <laughs> Derek gets so angry sometimes. I'm sorry, Jonathan. That Derek is <laughs> completely inappropriate. Uh, maybe we could continue and talk about uh, the sort of puzzles that you think classical realism helps solve, and in particular, the Munich problem and the issue of Vietnam. And I also just want to make What's interesting to me is that it's interesting to lay out for you to lay out sort of how the structural realists approach it and then how you approach it. I think that was a very effective strategy in really illuminating what classical realism, which to me, I agree, is the most useful IR approach if you want to like apply it to actually existing in the world, brings to the table. Yes. Um, so one of the reasons why I write the book is I say, well, why should we embrace classical realism? And the answer, again, is, you know, I think it could do a better job of explaining and understanding events in world politics. So what are some big puzzles in world politics? And one of them, a very big puzzle in world politics, I feel, is Britain's appeasement of Nazi Germany. After all, all theories of international relations, but certainly all realist theories of international relations, think that job one of a country is to survive. And yet Britain, which was a great power at the time, put itself within a hair's breadth of annihilation. So obviously they made some terrible mistakes, and why did they do so? Structural realism doesn't have good answers for this, in my view. There are a couple of not bad structural realist theories out there. 
uh, one, that Chamberlain was buying time to fight at a better moment. That's just wrong. I think the empirical evidence suggests that Chamberlain was not buying time. That when Chamberlain said he was delivering us peace in our time, that's what he was shopping for, and that's what he meant. The other one is an argument that's more sophisticated, and it's about buck passing, that Britain and France were trying to leave the burden of dealing with Nazi Germany to the other. Uh, And that has some plausible deductive logic to it. But again, I think the closer you look at uh, the evidence, the less you see that as being a primary driver of British policy. So how do we explain uh, British behavior in this period that led, again, that put them on the precipice of annihilation? Uh, And I think that you need to rely on those two variables that is forbidden by structural realism, history and ideology. So what's the relevant history? The relevant history is World War I. Uh, The European powers, but especially countries like Britain and France, were utterly traumatized by the experience of World War I. It was the decimation of an entire generation. They really, really did not want to do that again. So the desperate need to avoid another giant European war, it was really informing the way populations and leaders were thinking at that time. Structural realism finds World War I irrelevant. It's just power and the distribution of power. I think World War I is crucial to explain the foreign policy choices of the 1930s. And then you have ideology. Who would have been a good ally uh, for Britain against Germany? Russia. Russia's a natural ally uh, for Britain and for France against Germany, a rising Germany. But Britain was extremely reluctant to team up with Russia, or even approach teaming up with Russia uh, to, to try and contain the rise of German power. Why, in today's terms? Because they're a bunch of commies. Uh, they were afraid of Bolshevism. They much more feared the weak and disorganized communists in Russia than they did the rising fascists in Germany. Uh, and you can do a thought experiment about this. And again, Chamberlain said he couldn't trust the Russians, and he's probably right to say that, but who could he trust? He trusted Hitler. He trusted Mussolini. So it can't just be who you can trust in world politics. So the thought experiment is this. If German radicalization goes the other way, and instead of the far right taking over Germany, the far left does, and that was on the table, that was a plausible outcome. And then in Russia, the civil war breaks the other way, and a a rightist government emerges, and the communists lose that civil war. So you have a right-wing government in Russia, a communist government in Germany, Britain's unchanged, and everybody has exactly the same distribution of power. I think Britain would have rather rapidly teamed up with Russia to try, and France to try and contain communist Germany's power. All we've changed here is the ideological nature of the entities involved, not the power. Uh, but they didn't do that. And Chamberlain and British elites at the time, the British Conservative Party really ran uh, British foreign policy at this time, really, really were primarily in fear of communism and its potential spread. And, and this is the nasty part, they were not fascists themselves, but they were content to live in a world in which Nazi Germany and fascism was predominant on the continent. I don't Especially, think anyone, anyone who knows yeah. British history in, in, in the global south will not be surprised at that, at that willingness. Jonathan, I just have a question, and this is an ignorant one. 
So if I'm seeking to answer the question of Munich again, I go into the archives and I say security was the most important factor, but then so were ideas of race and gender. And, you know, Chamberlain had diarrhea that week. And so that really also affected his mood. Um, how does a political scientist or classical realism come at the data? Do you, do you just read historians? You read 40 historians and then you sort of weigh the information. I've always been curious about that. If you're not doing the sort of it, empirical research, archival research? I think classical realists do want to weigh the evidence. Um, I don't know if we're going to be the ones diving into the archives, but I do think we're the ones who are going to be reading the great books that the historians who have been in the archives have provided for us. I mean, primary sources are wonderful, uh, and I don't mean to be dismissive of them in the slightest, but we want to understand what leaders are thinking. Uh, I think that matters. But this is another distinction between classical realism and structural realism, which is, does diplomacy matter? Does leadership matter? I mean, cl for classical realists, for Thucydides, I mean, much of the tragedy for Thucydides was that Pericles left the scene. Uh, and, and so certainly for Thucydides, who the leader was mattered tremendously. Leadership and diplomacy matter for classical realism, and therefore you do need to understand what the diplomacy was, and who the leaders were, and the decisions they made. The counterfactual here, and this is where we'd have a fight with structural realists, is change the diplomacy, change the leadership, do you see different outcomes? Uh, sometimes you will, sometimes you won't. I mean, a lot of times politicians posture as saying they will behave very differently than the person that came before, but then when confronted with the realities of power, they actually pursue policies that kind of look a lot like what their opponents or the person they succeeded had pursued. So again, I don't mean to be dismissive of the notion that there are structural factors that shape the way in which states respond to incentives in world politics. But nevertheless, what classical realists introduced crucially is the idea that leadership and diplomacy are variables that you cannot simply dispense with. Can we go through the Vietnam case now, too, if you don't mind? Because I think this is really, it really highlights with examples what's going on here. Sure. The Vietnam case is a similar exercise where I say, well, what do the structural theories tell us about the Vietnam War? And why do I think a classical explanation do a better job of explaining what happened? And structural realist theories, the best best ones were really power cycle theories. They imagined the Vietnam War as part of the rise and fall of American hegemony. And so that in Vietnam, America reaches the limits of its power, and then it atrophies at the frontiers, and it contributes to its uh, underlying decline relatively to other powers. But if you look at the two massive misguided adventures the U.S. embarked on in the post World War II era, uh, the Vietnam War and its war against Iraq, these were not a function of the limits of power. These were functions of having a giant surplus of power. Only the U.S. could have imagined taking on such gigantically misguided adventures as those two wars. Any country that was had any sort of real security issue on its hands, an enemy on its frontiers, couldn't even dream of embarking upon such outlandish missions. So the classical realist approach focuses on the surplus of power and again, that crucial variable of hubris. We can do this because we can, 
because there are no limits to our power. And we will travel 10,000 miles and we will pour impossible amounts of resources into this and we will fix the world in our image. And so in that sense, the Vietnam War is similar to the Iraq War in that it is reflective of the blunders made by states not that are at the limits of their power, but that have simply too much power surplus and are looking for something to do with it. So let's say, uh, yes, totally agree. But how would a classical realist take account of domestic politics? And like, let's just say, this is far too simple, but the Marxist case, Jonathan, that sounds great. It's the military industrial complex. Like say what you will about all this surplus of power. There are a bunch of people at Lockheed Martin and Douglas Aircraft, and they had to spend their things. How, how does a classical realist respond to that critique? Well, I don't know if it's a critique so much as any foreign policy is going to have to command a reasonably politically influential coalition to support it. Uh, and so certainly what we might call the military industrial complex uh, may be enthusiastic about military adventures abroad because it means that the government has to buy more of their stuff. Is that a principal driver of American foreign policy? That's a judgment call that, to me personally, I'm not convinced of it. So I can think... Neither am I, but it's it's a question that you have to answer by... Again, going into the archive. I mean, like that, that, that's really my question is how, do, how does a classical realist approach that question? Cause I agree. It wasn't, it's not sure. the marks. That's wrong. It's just not correct. Again, yes, it is a greater attention to detail than structural realists or hyper rationalists would want us to have because there are so many great games you can play, great intellectual games, right? The, 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 the most famous one with Vietnam is, um, you know, Kennedy versus LBJ. You know, you could, you could, go to an, a, your favorite saloon and argue about this for four hours. Um, but certainly, I think Johnson and his personality and where he was in the political cycle uh, shaped his thinking. Uh, but I mean, so... Fred Logavall, everyone. Yeah, <laughs> so, you, so you just can't take that out uh, of the equation. Um, but in trying to explain... Vietnam in toto, I do think the classical realist first reaches for hubris and first reaches for the idea that this is something that only a a state with almost a preternatural level of security could even imagine taking on. And so until you're there, until you have a state with a tremendous security surplus, you can't even have that conversation. You can still have Johnson, you can still have the military-industrial complex, but if you're in a security-scarce situation, you're not sending the, the, the bulk of your military and much of your economy you know, 12,000 miles away to an obscure part of the periphery. Right, and I just want to highlight this because this really shapes my thought. In some sense, what realists do, and I believe this is correct, is that they highlight power as the base of IR. Just like the Marxists highlight the means of production as the base of the of society, um, and I think there's really interesting theoretical work actually to connect those two bases, which kind of run in parallel but are not theoretically connected. But I just wanted to highlight that because to me that really is the fundamental realist insight, and I believe that to be ontologically true. <laughs> the primary cause of a lot of IR, not 100%, is somehow related to security and power. So I just wanted to pause on that for a second. Classical realists, 
super influenced me in that regard. I think that's true. But I also want to add that classical realists in contrast to structural realists, right, both emphasize power tremendously. But classical realists put more emphasis on politics as drivers of behavior than sort of narrow materialist approaches. I mean, structural realism is a very narrowly materialist theory, whereas classical realism, and they're often caricature because of this, think that actors are political, that they have political goals and political ambitions uh, on the world stage. And this is the, this is the, mind, the, the uh, mind game I play with structural realists about China, for example. If all states wanted was security, then we need to know very much less about Chinese foreign policy now than we did 40 years ago. Because China is way more secure, orders of magnitude more secure today than it was 40 years ago. It's much, much more powerful and much, much more secure. So if you're just saying all states want is to be secure, like many structural realists do, then China's done, covered, they're fine. The way they answer it, it's like they're only secure when they control the entire globe, which I think (laughs) is, is no joke, an idea linked to American Protestantism. This sort of universalistic, this is why, like, that idea is linked to the American sense of Protestant mission. That the only way you're safe is the entire globe. I don't think China culturally, ideologically, has that same influence of messianic Protestantism, which I think is unique. People, What Kennan did wrongly was basically put that messianism onto Marxism-Leninism, which I think he was reflecting a mirror, but that's neither... That's sure, not, but I want to parse out two parts of that conversation, because on the, the what, what you jumped in there with, I think, is a fascinating argument that can be made, again, at the, at the theoretical level. My point about China was a, a narrower one, which is that classical realists, even if they don't think China will become messianic, and I'm not, and I don't think they will, uh, expects that as states become more powerful, they want more things, and that's not security seeking, right? That, and from a classical realist, that's perspective. American capitalism, baby. <laughs> <laughs> well, but it's also an interpretation of what actors want, um, and do actors want? in a word, more. That is, as their capacities grow, do their ambitions grow? And I think classical realists have an answer for that, and their answer is usually yes, whereas structural realists must be agnostic on that because structural realism models its actors in the main as nothing more than security seekers. And if they've achieved security by whatever means, then they're covered. Whereas I think classical realism in this sense is a little darker than structural realism because it thinks that that capabilities will breed some larger ambition which is precisely my critique of it for classical realists it's always 1933 that's the big problem but that's a conversation for another day jonathan kirshner thank you so much for joining us everyone get out uh get out and buy his book and we'll have a link in the show notes thank you so much thanks for having me it's been a real pleasure having this conversation Second. Hello, Prestige Heads, and welcome to Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner, and comrade Derek Davison, and we are excited to welcome to the podcast Jonathan Kirshner. Jonathan is a professor of political science and international studies at Boston College, and he's also the author of An Unwritten Future, Realism, Uncertainty, and World Politics, which has been released by Princeton University Press. It is a great book. Jonathan, thank you much so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here and to see you again.